Welcome everyone to the demand side. I'm your host, Edward Brown. On today's episode, we're talking about profit maximization and whether shareholder value is the only thing company boards should be concerned with, or if their purview should extend beyond profits. Here to discuss is our very special guest, Professor Oliver Hart. Professor Hart is currently the Lewis P. and Linda L. Geyser University Professor at Harvard University, where he has taught since 1993. Professor Hart's research centers on the roles that ownership structure and contractual arrangements play in the governance and boundaries of corporations. His recent work focuses on how parties can write better contracts and on the social responsibility of business. He has published numerous journal articles and a very fascinating book, Firms, Contracts, and Financial Structure. He is a fellow of the Econometric Society, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the British Academy, and the American Finance Association. He is a member of the National Academy of Sciences, a distinguished fellow of the American Economics Association, and holds several honorary degrees. He has been president of the American Law and Economics Association and a vice president of the American Economics Association. And in 2016, he was co-recipient of the Nobel Prize in Economics. Professor Hart, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, Professor, we're, we're very happy to have you on today. Um, we're going to take a, a, a look at your uh, 2017 paper, uh, Companies Should Write, or excuse me, Companies Should Maximize Shareholder Welfare, Not Market Value, uh, a, a paper that really everyone should take a look at because it asks a, a question that I'm sure everyone in public policy and even, even those outside of public policy have asked it at, at one point or another. And that is, what is the appropriate objective of a firm? What's their role? How should they be motivated, et cetera? So before we get started, um, I'm, I'm sure our listeners would love to know uh, what brought you to asking such a, a big question and, and, and how you went about answering it. Um, yes, well, I'm happy to talk about that. Um, actually, um, I was interested not in exactly that question, but in, in a related question um, early on in my career. So I got my PhD from Princeton University in 1974. And um, shortly after, I um, was working on the question of um, the, the appropriate objective function of a firm. Actually, even in my thesis, I was interested in that. And now, at the time, I was um, interested in um, what firms should do when they face uncertainty. So people talk about profit maximization, but you know, in an uncertain world, um, profits are uncertain. You can't maximize something, an uncertain amount, a, a random variable to be uh, sort of more precise about. So, you know, the question is, do you maximize the expected value of that looking forward um, or some sort of uh, or something else? I mean, should you take into account um, the attitudes to risk of your shareholders? That was actually uh, something I was initially interested in. And how do you aggregate their attitudes to risk? I mean, just think about it. So, uh, imagine a firm has two projects that it can undertake. Um, one of them is, um, you know, much surer than the other. So one of them is going to yield $100 two years from now, and the other one could yield, uh, you know, $1,000 um, or zero. Um, uh, it could be a big success or it could be a failure. Um, how do you compare those uh, given that your shareholders uh, may be averse to risk. So that was the sort of thing I was interested in. But at some point, um, I decided, you know, that wasn't really a first order issue. So it was uh, theoretically quite interesting, but I wasn't convinced it was empirically terribly important. And so I got more interested in uh, another line of research that was very active at the time, which was um, principal agent uh, problems. So here, um, what people were concerned about was not so much how to aggregate the preferences of shareholders, but how to get management to act on shareholders' behalf. So this literature sort of assumed that shareholders had um, a simple objective, which in fact was something like profit or market value maximization, shareholder value, maximizing the value of their shares. 
Um, and the big challenge, um, according to this literature, was, well, how do you get managers to pursue that goal? Because managers have their own interests. Um, okay, so this is known as the principal agent problem and, and a huge um, part of the corporate finance literature from around the mid-70s um, until now has been concerned with that question. How do you align managers' preferences with shareholders? But then, um, so I am going to eventually answer your question. Um, then recently, um, I got interested in this que question again about what do the shareholders want? And but this time, it's the, the whole thing seemed much more important to me. So um, I started, together with Luigi Zingales, who is a co-author on the paper you mentioned, we started thinking about things like the environment. Um, and, um, you know, would shareholders necessarily want uh, companies to maximize profit or market value, given that the, the their company might be damaging the environment? And these people might care about the environment, not just because it affected them directly, but because they're socially responsible people and they cared about the effect on others. And once we started thinking about that, we realized that, well, this sounds like a first order consideration. So the, the point is that just to, to sort of close the circle then, you know, back 50, almost 50 years ago, uh, I was interested in what was theoretically a similar question. Um, could shareholders want something other than value maximization? Something other than value maximization. But at the time, the sort of deviations just didn't seem empirically very important. But then, in this new context of the environment, I decided um, that the deviations were first order important. So I got, you know, re-energized on this topic. Uh, so that's basically it. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know. But what what did you find out after after all your research? Where did you land? Are are, are firms obligated to extend their focus uh, beyond profits? Uh, is it is it just uh, environmental concerns? What where did uh, where did you land? Right. Um, no, it's not just environmental concerns. It could be other things. Um, let's call it ESG, particularly the the E and the S. It seems to me. Um, I mean, companies, uh, shareholders might want their companies to be um, run in a fair manner. They might want uh, their companies to look after um, workers well or consumers well. I mean, these uh, as well as being concerned about the environment or they may not. So I think where we landed was that we went along with the pre the prevailing view in many quarters, but not all, of course, uh, which is that companies should act on behalf of um, their owners, the shareholders, because that's the way they're set up. So, you know, I, I take a kind of freedom of contract point of view, uh, which I believe uh, deeply, that um, people should be allowed to craft the contractual arrangements that they um, want to craft, uh, unless there are clear uh, third-party effects negative effects on others. Um, but short of that, you let them do what they want. And that extends to how they set up a company. So if they want to set up a company um, with, let's say, workers having the votes or consumers having the votes, you know, worker-owned or consumer-owned firm, they're free to do that. But by and large, people don't do that. They set up their companies uh, and allocate the ownership rights, the control rights to, to the shareholders. So that to me suggests they that the company is meant to act on behalf of these people. Um, but I don't think it follows from that, um, that um, the company should maximize profit or market value because um, the owner's preferences may be more complicated than that. And what Luigi and I argued in this paper is that uh, to put it, um, you know, it, very briefly, um, if if people are pro-social, socially responsible to some extent, which we think most people are in their private lives, that you know that should also extend to their life, their lives as as shareholders or owners. And sometimes, in many cases, actually, um, companies have a comparative advantage um, in doing good 
uh, in the world relative to individuals. So, um, you know, the, uh, we, we can talk about Milton Friedman at this point, if you like. I mean, Milton Friedman basically, in his very famous um, newspaper article back in 1970, argued that companies should just uh, maximize uh, shareholder wealth. Because his, uh, his argument, which was very appealing in some respects, was, look, let, let companies make shareholders as rich as possible, and then uh, they can decide, each shareholder can decide how to use that wealth um, in whatever way they like, and that may include uh, doing good in the world. But it's up to them. Uh, that, argument, uh, that argument makes perfect sense if individuals um, have a comparative advantage in doing good in the world relative to companies. But unfortunately, elegant as the, as the argument is, it does not make sense if it's the other way around, if companies are better able to do good than individuals. And I think that is true uh, for a, a number of things, including most clearly for the environment. Let me just pause there because <laughs> you may. Right. Well, you know that, that's very that's very interesting, and it and it, and it really makes sense. Um, but let's let's take a, a step back and I guess provide a little background for our listeners. You did provide some background on 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 Friedman's analysis, which is you know very it seems to be quite embedded in in in, in uh, corporate decision making today. Um, yeah. So you know your 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 take on the firm is is. Is, is very different from the mindsets of those who currently run major comp, uh, major corporations. So can you can you talk about how we got here? You know, how did we arrive in, in this world of, you know, profits at all costs? It seems like is it it was it primarily Friedman or were there other things that that, that took place to to get us to where we are now? I mean, there are some changes uh, I, I think changes, you know, taking place recently, but it seems over like over the last, you know, four decades, it's, it's very much been a, a, a profit, profit oriented uh, structure, you know, and, and not really concerning yeah. about anything else. Yes. Um, no, I don't think it's um, uh, entirely freedom by any means. Uh, th there were, you know, lawyers have argued similar things um, well before him. I think there was a debate, I know there was a debate uh, uh, by um, uh, Dodd and, and Bull. Um, I, I, that, I'm pretty sure I've got <laughs> the two people right, about uh, way back in maybe the 30s, um, about the appropriate um, purpose of a company. And I think um, Dodd was arguing that uh, companies shouldn't just focus on um, shareholder value and and Burr was arguing they should but you know here I'm uh, uh, I may not be 100% accurate but I think that that I I think that's roughly right so but the, the point is I think um people for a long time would have associated acting on behalf of shareholders with a share uh, shareholder value they would they would have um I think it was because they weren't really thinking about um, ESG sorts of matters because they weren't as important then. Uh, that's the only explanation um, I can offer. As I say, I, I, if I look at myself, um, you know, I would have signed on to the Friedman um, dictum uh, until very recently because, um, you know, because I, I just wasn't thinking about these sort of externalities. Um, I, I'm gonna pick the environment as, as the biggest one. Um, and so, um, so I think that that's, uh, and I think corporate law also um, has been set up that way. Indeed, you know, if you look at um, something like fiduciary duty, um, duty of loyalty, uh, let's take asset managers. Here's where I think it's, very clear cut. Um, as the standard in in the US, um, and I, I think it's true else. You know, probably true in the UK as well. Until recently, um, it was uh, true that um, fiduciary duty means maximizing 
long-run return. So the idea is um, that if um, you, uh, Edward, if I can call you Edward, you can certainly call me Oliver. Yeah, please. If you, Edward, are an asset, if you are a, let's say, a trustee of a pension fund, you know, so people have um, invested their savings, their retirement savings with you, uh, then, you know, you have a fiduciary duty to the to those investors. And that has interpreted, been interpreted to mean that you have an obligation to um, maximize um, the long run return of their investment. So, um, you know, there's been a huge amount of discussion about short run versus long run. So, you know, one, one thing that um, a big thing is, um, does a, a, a fiduciary have to um, worry about, you know, should they be focused entirely on short run market value or can they look at long run market value? And um, the courts have said it's okay to look at the long run. Uh, so, you know, some sort of temporary speculative fluctuation, you know, you, know, you, can, you can put that aside. Um, but it's still all about the money. So, um, uh, so you know, if, if you as the asset manager um, decided to invest in shares of a company that was doing good in the world because you thought that was the right thing to do, you could be in trouble. You would be in trouble. Right. Somebody could sue you. Um, or if you um, voted, you know, if there was something coming up at a shareholder meeting and you voted um, for something that uh, was likely going to make this particular company, company cleaner, but at the expense of profits, you could also be sued. That was the, the legal standard. Now, I, I believe in the UK, it's beginning to change. Now, the idea is, well, um, perhaps it, it would be uh, good for you to actually ask your investors, the people who put their pension money with you, what, what would you like, you know? Right. Uh, because, because after all, if I can just finish, because I think this is tremendously important. If you voted for the financially um, sensible thing, that might actually be disloyal to the extent that your the majority of your investors actually um, felt that, that they would be willing to give up a bit of money in order to push this particular company in a cleaner direction. If that's what they really wanted and you just sort of ignore those wishes, and, and, and focused only on the money. To me, it would seem that's disloyal, but that's not the way the American law uh, has treated it. Right, I mean, that's that was, you know, one thing that I wanted to ask was how does, I guess, US, US law de currently define the role of, the, uh, of a firm? Is it, is it solely fiduciary, you know, duty, fiduciary responsibility? I would imagine that if there is a, a, a definition of the role of a firm, it, it is probably different from your take. And, and I'm sure um, that whatever the law states uh, is, is probably what executives use as a, as a guide or, or justification for their profit-seeking behavior, right? Well, of, of course, what is true and people always saying this, that in US law, the business judgment rule protects the boards of companies. I think this is less true of asset managers, but when it comes to the CEOs or the boards of, um, you know, regular companies, um, it's very easy for um, the board to say, um, we're going to do X rather than Y, um, they can always say, for example, suppose X is the environmentally or socially friendly thing to do. Um, and they can always say, you know, we think in the long run, this is going to be good for the company. Um, because, um, you know, if we do the environmentally unfriendly thing, um, consumers will not buy our product or workers won't want to work for us. And by the way, that may be true. All those things may be true or they may not be true. It's very hard to say what's um, uh, going to be true for the long run profitability of this company. So it, it, 
because of the business judgment rule, they can they can do almost, uh, this is one argument, they can currently do almost anything they want and always say it's good for long run, uh, or it's ma- going to maximize long run profitability. Um, as I say, I think it's less true. Of, I, I, I don't think an asset manager can so easily uh, perhaps do that. But so, so that's that's the. But I, I think you know, you ask, um, why do people hold on to this view so firmly? I mean, I think one of the reasons is it's it's uh, probably you know self interest. I think for. Um, uh, CEOs and the like. I mean, being able to say we have a duty to maximize profit, it also means they can justify, um, you know, rewarding themselves for high profit. Um, they, you know, it's. I think it's easier for them, um, at least at the moment, to become wealthy that way. Right. It's, it's, it suits them. Although I, I do think it, it could be they could do perfectly well under a, a different system too. Right. Well, you know, I, we, we touched on this a, a little bit earlier with the, what, what the, what the individual is able to do. Um, if, if he were, you know, responsible for the, the externalities. Um, but I think, I think most executives of fortune 500 companies would counter your argument with, well, how about we just, let let us make money and and let individuals and governments uh, deal with any externalities. Our job is to 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 make a profit. One that's that's easier for them, and like you said, they can they can justify their their high salaries and bonuses when they when they do that. But I, yeah, I think there's they would just say we're here to make money. The government's got a problem with how we're making money. Let them deal with it. What do you say? Well, I think that. That is certainly a, a you know a pretty compelling argument in the sense that every economist and I am an economist would sign on to the idea that um, well actually I'll come back to that maybe not everyone but a lot of economists would say that um, the entity that is best able to deal with externalities is the government and they should be doing it and if the government does their job then uh, companies. Um, and individuals, for that matter, can just go and uh, be selfish because the externalities will be dealt with. I mean, that is, you know, um, if I'm going to create some pollution and the government has done its job, well, then I'll have to pay for that. There'll be some sort of tax on that. And I'll only do it if it's worth it, if I'm actually generating um, a revenue or profit which exceeds that tax. And that uh, many economists would say, well, that means um, I should be doing it. The benefits exceed the costs because the costs have been properly accounted for through this uh, government tax. And that's all fine. And I certainly agree with that. But what we have to uh, decide is, well, what happens if the government isn't doing its job? And I think many people these days particularly feel that um National governments are not doing their job, and certainly internationally, um, the job is not being done. Because in order to deal with something like um, climate change, um, the environment, you 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 need coordination by uh, national governments across the globe, and that is not you know I, I think it's not even happening with you know within countries, let alone between countries. So then, you know, we're in a second or third best situation where the government isn't um, fully solving the problem. So then, you know, the question is, what should uh, private actors be doing? And, you know, we we all, uh, you know, if somebody says, I mean, you wouldn't say to somebody, don't bother to give to charity, because the, that's the, <laughs> the government should be solving that problem. Right. Why are you giving to poor people? You know, <laughs> that's the government's job. Um, well, that would be laughable because we don't think the government is solving that problem. So, you know, if you think that, well, then the question is, um, shouldn't companies be doing their bit too? Particularly, as I say, when they have a comparative advantage, which I think is clearly true. Let's say carbon footprint. Um, you know, it's much uh easier, more effective for, for Exxon to reduce its carbon footprint than for a bunch of people like you and me to do it. Right. So 
so how do we how do we get society how do we get wall street how do we get company you know executives how do we get corporate leaders who for the most part side with friedman's assessment of of shareholder value um how do we get them to move from being solely concerned with maximizing shareholder value or or their interpretation of shareholder value to becoming concerned with things that that go beyond profits like ethical and and and, and social concerns because it, it does seem that the 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 freedman shareholder value uh revolution uh seems to be somewhat still entrenched in in, in corporate decision making yes um it's somewhat entrenched undoubtedly it's quite you know yes fairly entrenched but not completely i mean uh we are living at an interesting time where where there changes are do seem to be happening so i i think this is a good moment where uh, for people to you know reconsider what they think um we do hear a lot now about um how being concerned about um ESG is actually going to be good for the bottom line. So, I mean, this is, you know, executives are signing on now more than before to the idea that um, they should be worrying about these things, even if they're only interested in uh, money. Uh, because if, they, if they're not concerned about these things, uh, if their company is seen as dirty or, you know, treating workers badly maybe i mean it's 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 unclear to what extent this is true but you know some consumers will be put off some workers won't want to work for those companies so so we have that going on but i think the interesting territory is um what happens when there are trade-offs so just to pick what you know one example which i think is um right in front of us is um, what happened with Exxon, uh, you know, in the last couple of weeks, and with this company, Engine Number One, that, um, as I'm, I, I'm sure you know, but and just to remind your your listeners about it, uh, they managed to get um, two or three or four. I don't. I think it was up to three. I don't know whether they're going to um, people they nominated to the board of uh, Exxon. Um, you know. Uh, winning victories against the incumbent um, directors. And this was a huge achievement and it's been written up in all the financial papers and so on as like a kind of revolution. Because this, the, the engine number one had a incredibly small shareholding in Exxon. And so the way they did it was to get some of the big players um, to side with them, to vote for their guys, and uh, uh, the big players, including um, BlackRock and Calpers, and I think Vanguard, and so on, and and that's how they succeeded. Now it turns out that Luigi and I um, have spoken to, uh, we spoke to the uh, a couple of the people in this company, uh, including Chris James, uh, you know a few months ago before it was really launched because um, one of the people who works with Chris James is Michael O'Leary and he is someone who, uh, he wrote a book, he was sort of interested in Luigi's and my paper, we talked to him about that paper and then, um, you know, Chris James was on a, another call and um, kind of interested as well. But um, here's the thing, I think, um, the way engine number one won was, was by saying to people, uh, Exxon is not only being environmentally unfriendly, but it is also not creating value. Ah. It, its, strat its strategy is not a profit maximizing one. And um, they have, so to, they have to listen to that. Yeah, this is win-win for money and for the environment. And that's how they got the big players to 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 um um go along with them and um the big question of course is uh and and you know i i i asked them after they after they 
had this victory, I wrote to uh, Michael who I, uh, and said, look, congratulations, this is great. But, you know, and that's when he told me how, the, how they pitched it. And he, he agreed that, um, you know, the case where you're going to BlackRock and saying, well, you know what, this is a situation where we think um, Exxon should change it or some other company should change its policy. It's going to reduce profit a bit, but it's going to be so great for the environment. Please agree with us, vote for our guys. I mean, that, that hasn't happened yet. And that's going to be a much tougher sell. But to me, that's the interesting case, because the idea that um, there's never a trade-off, that you can always you know, be good for the environment and good for the bottom line, and you never have to sacrifice one for the other. I and mean, that seems to me just um, unbelievable. <laughs> right. It can't, it can't always be that simple. And so I'm looking forward to a situation where you can actually get the big players to be willing to sacrifice um, a bit of the bottom line. But to me, the way that's going to happen is if they, in turn, go to their investors um, and ask them, because I think it's more like, you know, if if Larry Fink thinks that he should only be backing things um, which, uh, are, you know, are good for the bottom line, among other things, if he thinks that, that is quite a constraint. But maybe he could change his thinking, and particularly he would realize that a lot of these small investors who put their money with him may actually be more flexible than he realizes. Right. Well, let's 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 talk about that. I, you know, I want to talk a little bit about uh, investor perceptions and and and, and uh, their their mentality um, when they make investment decisions. You 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 say in the paper, the ultimate shareholders of a company are ordinary people who, in their daily lives, are concerned about money, but not just about money. They have ethical and social concerns. For example, someone might buy an electric car rather than a gas guzzler because he or she is concerned about pollution or global warming. She might use less water in her house or garden than what is privately optimal because water is a scarce good. However, if consumers and owners of private companies take social factors into account and internalize externalities in their own behavior, why would they not want public companies they invest in to do the same? Now, this makes sense. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I agree with this, and it seems to be we're, 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 we're perhaps we're turning a corner here, but uh, is this really the case, you know, is, or is it that consumers act in this way as consumers, but invest in companies that will generate the largest returns for them? You know, I guess in, in layman's terms, are people a little bit hypocritical when it comes to their nest egg? Well, uh, it's an interesting point um but i would describe it more it's more than hypocritical it's sort of schizophrenic it seems to me if you're like that because it just does it doesn't make logical sense to be um nice over here and not and nasty over here i mean if i you know if i said to a person um i mean let's think of a a kind of concrete situation you um you have a hundred dollars and you're going to, well, sorry, let, let's take the case of, of, of the person who puts, um, you know, who buys the electric car or puts solar panels on that house, let's say. Uh, let's suppose that, um, I have to try to <laughs> do the numbers on the spot, but that, you know, suppose the solar panels cost um, $50,000 and, um, you could have, um, well, uh, yeah, I mean, let, let's suppose you could have um, had regular heating and that would have cost uh, $40,000. Um, but by spending the extra $10,000, um, you are improving the environment by $15,000, okay? And so um, you say to yourself, yes, it does cost me 10000 more, but I'm doing, you know, the damage to the environment goes down, uh, and we, we measure that in money terms, 
um, the gain there is 15,000. And I'm willing to make that trade-off because I'm quite socially responsible. But suppose I said to that person, you know, you have a... Um, you have some shares in Exxon. Let's go back to Exxon. Right. You have some shares in Exxon, and Exxon could do something which would reduce um, your wealth by ten thousand dollars. So go, you know, you know, just like uh, buying the solar panels, which costs an extra ten thousand dollars relative to the other way to heat your house. Um, Exxon could take an action which would reduce the value of your shares in Exxon by 10,000, but would improve the environment by $100,000. Right. So if I said to that, then that, you know, and I said to that person, surely, you know, given that you're, wouldn't it be better for you, you know, if you, if you had the choice, maybe you want to do both, but let's suppose, um, you know, you can't give up that much money. So it would be better for you to take the hit on the Exxon shares and forget about the solar panels because that way, you know, you've improved the environment by 100K, not just 15K. Right. Now, it seems to me that a person who said, no, 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 you know, I'm schizophrenic, so I just never think about that way about my shares. I only think about it when it, you know, comes to how I heat my house. I mean, I would have to say to them, sit down, think, you know, I think you're you're not being logical, right? Yeah, I mean, to me, it, it seems that if if returns are equal, investors would should always choose choose a a clean firm over a dirty one. You know, and for instance, investing in a company that that makes solar panels uh, over a company that produces tobacco or guns, uh, but that that's not really always the, the world we live in. Um, but, and so we always have the trade off. We always have sort of a dilemma and you model uh, that dilemma in, in a quite novel way. You say, uh, quote, we believe that in reality, many investors are pro-social, even though they are willing to hold shares of, uh, you know, tobacco or gun companies. Uh, and to capture this, we suppose that each individual puts some weight on doing the right thing or the socially efficient thing, but only if he is responsible for the action in question, unquote. Can you talk a little bit about this? Because this was a really interesting part of your paper. Uh, well, <laughs> I can, but I have to say, Edward, that we our thinking has moved on a bit, actually. We have a, okay. newer, <laughs> we have a newer paper. Um, which is very similar in, in terms of the implications. And we, it still has these pro-social preferences, but we've moved away a bit from this responsibility idea. It turns out you don't really need it. So um, perhaps we shouldn't focus so much on that because I don't think that is a critical um, issue. Right. If that's okay. Well, let's, let's shift to talk a little bit about uh, divestment. One of the, the, I guess, the most eye-opening part of your paper was your your take on the the, the sociology of divestment. Um, you you say, quote, if the divestment of pro-social investors were to depress the stock price of a targeted company, the non-socially concerned investors would flock to the stock, attracted by the the higher yield and driving the stock uh, price back to the pre-divestment level. Thus, unless the amount of wealth held by pro-social investors greatly exceeds the amount of selfish invest investors, divestments cannot have a persistent effect on prices and the cost of capital. You then go on to say, if in spite of the previous argument, divestment had an impact on prices, it would move controversial stocks into the hands of the least pro-social investors who will maximize the neg negative externality. Wow. You know, that's a lot to, that's a lot to take in, but I really hadn't thought about it in this light. I mean, I, I'm sure I'm not the only person who has said at one point or another, well, you know what, if you don't like what the company's doing, if you don't like the stock, don't buy it. Um, you know, that'll, that'll send a message to the, the, the company's board and, and they will make better, you know, more pro-social decisions. But it's, it's not that simple, is it? No, it's not that simple. Now, again, um, 
I'd like to at least um, mention this. Uh, if if, if um, some of your listeners are, um, don't mind technical arguments, which may be true, you know, if they're trained economists. Yeah, we have but a uh, lot of our uh, audience is, is, is a professional economist. So. Yes, yeah. yes. So um, I just want to uh, mention this other paper, the follow-up paper, um, Exit versus Voice. It's on my website. If you just Google Oliver Hart Harvard, you will get to my website. And it's a December 2020 paper. And there we actually go into more detail on, on all of this stuff, and including the, the, the divestment stuff you've just been talking about. So we actually look, at, and it, theoretically, uh, we have a model and we ask, you know, how much effect would you have if you divested? Is it worth it? Uh, given that, um, you know, so cost benefit analysis for an individual, and of course, taking into account the effect you've described, which is that um, if, you know, if you sell your shares, the price might go down a bit, but then um, people who are, who are less socially responsible than you will say, aha, this stuff is now cheap. It's, it's, uh, uh, it's cheaper. It's, it's yielding the same um, gross return as before, but it costs less. So we will buy it. And so the price impact will be very small. And that's hardly going to, you know, change what the company is doing, a value maximizing company will do. And meanwhile, you have um, uh, lost a good um, diversification um, opportunity, you know, you're, you're restricting what you can invest in and the and and it may not be to much effect and you've sold your shares to somebody who doesn't and, care and about in, any social responsibility right. as you say even worse than that it, it, it's uh, it's making the the population of shareholders of that company uh, less socially responsible um than it was before when you were there so what we what what i i think the right bottom line the takeaway is that it may be better uh, to engage rather than divest. So rather than getting out of a company um, because it's bad, why not stay with it and try to make it better? And um, that's what we really are, are arguing in both papers, engagement rather than um, divestment. Right. Voice rather than exit. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think we're we're sort of at a, an inflection point uh, in, in many sectors. Um, we had a, a colleague of yours, uh, Rebecca Henderson. We had her on the show last year. And yeah. she she talked about how um, many of the, the once revenue negative pro-social investments, uh, you know, the, they're now getting to the point where their costs have come down to such a, a low level that, they in fact can can add value to the bottom line. Do you you know solar panels, you know, clean, right. clean investments, et cetera? Do you do you see uh, this taking place as well? Do you see a major shift to where um, their companies are going to be investing in 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 more uh, clean enterprises because it, it is a big boost to the bottom line? Well, we certainly do seem to be seeing that. And of course, I welcome that. But it, it comes back to, um, you know, what we were talking about a few minutes ago. This is a win-win a situation. It's, 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 um, it's saying you can have it all. Um, right. You can do the environmentally right thing and make money. Because in fact, with, you know, I guess what Rebecca was saying is, you know, the prices of things are coming down to the point where, um, the clean technology is not only cleaner, but more efficient. And um, I mean, that's great. Um, and that, I, you know, that can take us some way, but eventually it seems to me we're going to run out of those win-win situations. Right. And then we have to um, grasp the nettle, bite the bullet, and ask ourselves, what should we do in situations where there's a trade-off. Are we willing to trade off some profit um, for a cleaner company? And I think the only way to, the right way to answer that is 
to ask the ultimate owners. So the shareholders, but you know, many of the important shareholders um, of public companies in the US are institutions. We have to go behind the institutions to the um, individuals who invest. So um, I don't think, um, when, when a social issue comes up, um, about, um, you know, it's on, it's on the ballot, or it could be, um, you know, uh, somebody who's um, standing, running for the board, uh, who says, you know, I'm, I'm going to be pushing for the following. Um, I don't think that Larry Fink at BlackRock should be making that decision, which way to go on that. I mean, I think, because I don't think he has um, a comparative advantage in dealing with social issues or rather with trade-offs. Right. It seems to me he should be going back to his investors and asking them. Um, and in the future, I don't know whether you want to talk about this now, but I, I do want to just mention that I think going forward, um, what we might see um, is um, mutual funds that announce ahead of time. So they set up and they say, we um, are, are going to, let's say, we're going to invest in everything. We're going to hold um, an index portfolio. Um, we're not going to, so, uh, I mean, some of them might say we're not going to hold dirty companies. They might say that, that's fine. Others might say um, we're going to hold everything, but we are going to be pushing um, for the following things. So we're going to be voting in the following way, in rough terms. And if you like that idea, um, put your money with us. And there might be, you know, some other some other mutual fund might say, we couldn't care, you know, we think government should fix the environment. Um, we are just going for maximum returns. That's what we, you know, that's what we do. And if you like that, put on your money with us. And then there would be some variety and, and investors, people like you and me can choose where to put our money. So it seems to me um, that could be, um, I, I would, you know, I would, I, I would like to think that we might be headed there. Right. So given all this, how should CEOs change or do they even really need to change their uh, decision-making matrix? Um, and I guess how should investors adjust, adjust their calculus when, when making investment decisions? Because it seems that like right, right now, investors are, are still going where other investors are because that's where the returns are. Um, so do you see, or do you anticipate a, a noticeable change in investor, investor perceptions where, you know, you talked about institutional investors, um, uh, who are, who are, who are now the, the, the primary market players. Um, do you, do you see them being forced to make more pro-social decisions uh, in their in their investment choices or or do they uh, are do institutional investors can they pretty much do whatever they want well right now they probably can do what they want but i think so as we've been saying there's sort of two currents here one is that um the environment and social issues are becoming more salient more i mean the environment uh, both more important and more salient. And as a result, um, I would think any CEO has to be um, thinking about them, um, if only um, because the consumers who buy the firm's product or the workers who work for the firm care about them. And so even if you are a pure profit-maximizing CEO, um, you have to care about them now. So we're going to see that anyway. Um, the question, and, and, and so even if that's all that's going on, um, and, and, you know, and that's quite a lot because, you know, the millennials, we keep on hearing, they have different preferences. They're, right. they're going to be, these things are going to be uppermost in their thinking. And this is good. So, um, so this is pretty important by itself. Um, I think that may mean that CEOs, even the pure 
money CEOs are going to be pushed perhaps to um, have their company evaluated not just according to um, profit, but also according to uh, its its effect on um, the environment. And so what we might see is, um, well, I think we already have people measuring that. The trouble is that I think the you get many different answers. So there's a, a big variance in, in, in how a particular company might be assessed by different people uh, uh, in, in terms of its impact on the environment. But, you know, with luck, as time passes, uh, there'll be sort of con some convergence of those estimates. Um, and then I can imagine um, CEOs being paid, you know, on incentive schemes, which have in them not just financial return, but this other impact. And again, right. it might not... It might not be for the reasons I'm pushing, which is that the shareholders care. It might just be because everybody else cares and they're going to be looking at this company. If it isn't doing this, they're going to say, um, you know, I don't want to buy the product. Um, but then on top of that, I think we might see it also because shareholders are expressing their voice and they're saying, uh, we're pro-social people and we care about these other things and we want you to take them into account. And how, you know, as I said, that could be happening through, uh, from pressure um, by um, these big institutional uh, investors who in turn might be pressured by um, their investors. You know, with luck, I'd like to see, you know, engine number one, they're obviously brilliant. Um, right. I mean, we've had a huge success. I, I would love it if in the future um, they are willing, um, and I think they're interested in this, but I, 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 it would be great if they could move on to a case where there's a trade-off and right. where, you know, some uh, they're not there yet, but, may, but they, are, they, they know what they're doing. That's clear. So, you know, having somebody like that pushing for, um, for, for more social things, I mean that that could um, change change things. Yeah, I mean they they, yeah. they have momentum. They, it's, it, yeah, they do. Very uh, very interesting case for sure. You know, one one thing that stood out to me when when reading your paper was that um, we 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 need to find a, a way to make shareholders more aware of the investment decisions of the companies that they hold in their portfolio. And, and my, yeah. my, my first thought was to develop uh, a, a sort of a rating system like they do for movies that could tell investors how pro-social certain companies are. I mean, I'm sure there's some you know, private uh, companies that try try to do this and they evaluate them in, in, in certain parameters. But I, I feel like it needs to be much more abundant and because I feel like a lot of people don't know. You know, what they're holding, what their their company, uh, the, the what the company is doing, and what what do you, what do you think about that idea? Is is that already being done, or is it can it be can it be done better? Um, yes, I mean, I I think it it, it is a way forward. I, I I think there is some of that going on. I, you know, the, what I was talking about where you come up with environmental impact. I mean, that's something along these lines of a company. I, I think one of the, you know, we're still probably feeling in our way in how to measure this because, I mean, to give you an example, uh, you know, think of a company, uh, well, I've heard this, I don't want to, uh, I've heard that Tesla, you know, Tesla makes electric cars. Right. But I think, and here's where I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the details, but I think if you look at all the inputs they use to make electric cars, they're not so clean after all. Right. You know, the, output's, the output's very clean, but the input may not be so clean. And so, you know, that's one of the challenges. You, you have to look at the whole picture and, um, you know, not everybody's uh, very good at doing that. So, but I think that, um, you know, over time, we, people are going to get better and we're going to have some of these, the sort of thing you're talking about. And then I think investors will pay attention to that, particularly, you know, younger investors. Just as, by the way, you know, as a, an older investor, I mean, I get some um, 
you know, some of these um, proxy things, you know, voting on things, um, even though most of my stuff is through mutual funds or one or two things which are not, aren't, and I get something in the mail from them. And, you know, it's incredibly boring. Right. Because you're asked to vote for some people. You don't know who they are. Um, there's usually no, you know, almost never is there a contest. So, um, and then you're, t you're asked to, um, you know, vote against some shareholder resolution. Uh, I now, given my, you know, <laughs> what I now think, I tend to do the opposite of what management is suggesting <laughs> on that. But, um, but the thing is, if you had a, um, you know, if you were voting on something, um, which wasn't just kind of, we want the company to prepare a report on something, but something a little juicier than that. I think that's the kind of thing that people might be interested in, in doing, you know, and they might be willing to vote on that. Um, uh, I, I mean, it's, I'm, I'm saying something which is sort of consistent with what you're saying is if you had, if, um, it's also, I mean, you were talking about whether you invest in such a company, and that's important too. That you know, you would look at this ESG evaluation or whatever it is. Right. You know. So is yeah. is is I guess the 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 real uh, I guess challenge or, or or the the ultimate solution to get from where we are now to the the having a paradigm sh paradigm shift to to where we have more pro social decision making. Is it is it is it that we have to have more shareholder voting and that the voting needs to be easier because like you said you know you get those those proxy votes and you know it's just dull material it's, it's not always the easiest simplest thing to to do and even if you do it you know you're you assume that others aren't others like you aren't voting because you know they're they think the same thing and so all all that matters is the 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 big institutions yeah um, well, I certainly think it would help to make shareholder voting easier. I think it would be help. It would help to make it easier for shareholders to put things on the ballot. But the SEC has historically been quite hostile to this sort of thing. Um, I think partly because uh, they probably believed. I mean, I don't think it was that they were bad people. I think they probably believed that um, companies should be, you know, the, the appropriate thing for them to do was to make money. They, they, they accepted the, let's call it the Friedman uh, dictum. Right. And if you, if, you, if you accept that, if you think companies should be generating wealth and then individual, individuals can do uh, good with that wealth if they like, if that's your mindset, then these, uh, a lot of these shareholder proposals are just a distraction. And you don't want to, you want to discourage them. They're getting in the way of what, uh, management should be doing. But if you then realize, you know what, Friedman is not right in general, and um, companies may be better at, at uh, you know, doing these good things rather than people trying to do it out of their own wealth. Once you uh, accept that, then these things are no longer a distraction and shouldn't be discouraged. So I think the SEC uh, can do something thing here. But then, as I said, another thing is because we know that um, you know, vo you know, voting is always it's always a question of should I bother and all that sort of thing. So, given that, uh, and given that we have these big institutions, um, let's have these institutions either consult their investors or, as I say, how about this thing where they announce in advance what kind of is what their voting stance and issues will be, and then you. You decide where to put your money, and then you you don't need to think about it much anymore because right. they're going to be doing it on your behalf. Right. Very interesting. So when we when we think about the I guess some of the solutions to the issues we've we've discussed here today, if we assume that corporate boards have a duty to maximize shareholder wel welfare, not just shareholder value. Do we need to better define what welfare means? Do we do we need Congress to pass new legislation that de that defines welfare? I mean, right now it seems like the fiduciary duty is 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 the maxim. That's that's what everybody's using. Um, it seems that 
the the Friedman viewpoint is is what is being taught in many business schools, and and when students graduate, they they take that approach uh, into the workplace. So, what is what is sort of the, the the I guess the legal solution to put executives you know into a corner where this is this is the new standard? Um, I don't think we need Congress to to get involved. I mean, I think. Measuring shareholder wealth is not easy, but, um, you know, voting isn't a bad idea. That is, uh, on certain issues, um, and it, it could just be the kind of board you want. I mean, if we take the engine number one thing, I mean, we could, um, but it could also be some specific environmental um, matter that that uh, where the a big decision about um, what the company should do um, with some profit consequences and some environmental consequences. And, you know, shareholder welfare can be expressed through a vote. Um, right. Doesn't seem to be, with, as I say, the institutions perhaps, you know, voting on behalf of their investors in the way that the, and not just uh, because Larry Fink thinks it should be this or that, but, but because the investors have, have indicated one way or another, um, what they the the investors indicate what what they want. So I don't think that's a bad way, and it's that's perfectly possible within the current system. I don't think you need now. What I think you do need is, and we should have, is some um, change in the way um, we think about fiduciary duty. So I think probably um, let's take Delaware which, as you know, is um, the most important right. state <laughs> yeah. as far as the uh, corporate matters are concerned, um, I think they have historically taken the view that fiduciary duty means um, wealth maximization. Right. And I think they should be educated out of that. I think it's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I would like them, uh, you know, uh, to read the paper that you have kindly <laughs> talked about. I mean, it seems to me the logic in that paper is, I mean, I hope this doesn't sound too arrogant, but I think, and we're not the, it's pretty unassailable. Right. We're not the first people ever to have said this, by the way, but I think um, we perhaps have said it in that paper more clearly than anybody has. And that's important here. Clarity is important. And I would like, People to pay attention to it, and once they once they do, and the penny drops, I mean, they'll real. I think they should realize that they've got to change their views about what fiduciary duty means. So that again, I'm not sure you need Congress there, but I think you need judges uh, to rethink. And then, as I say, we also have the SEC. The SEC can play an important role in um, facilitating things. Um, I mean, they. One thing that has happened um, as we move from Trump to Biden is that um, under Trump, the um, Labor Department um, put out a rule saying that uh, fiduciaries of uh, pension funds um, could not deviate from um, long-run shareholder return. That was they had. That was what they had to uh, be concerned with. That and only that. And Biden, under Biden, the SEC has backed off that. So I think that's a Good. promising yeah. development, but there's much more um, that could be done. Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, maybe we'll just send your paper to every CEO of Fortune 500 companies and send one to the SEC while we're at it. Um, but that'd be nice. It's pretty readable as you, uh, you know, it is. <laughs> not, not, not everything I write is, <laughs> is very readable, but I think this one is. <laughs> well, professor, thank you so much for joining us today. I, I know our listeners and I have learned very much from you and, and, and we, we thank you for taking the time out of your, out of your busy schedule to join us. Well, thank you, Edward. I enjoyed it. Well, that's it for us here at The Demand Side. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, The Case Against Profit Maximization, with our very special guest, Oliver Hart. Make sure to check out all the episodes of The Demand Side on The Demand Side's landing page, wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to visit thedemandside.com for access to opinion pieces, 
books, news, and videos. Thank you all for joining us today. And remember, if you're forced to choose sides, always choose the demand side. Until next time.